0: You went away.
1: Well, happy here. people, it's Bo again, and uh, we're here tonight with uh, somebody known for being on the dance floor with a tambourine on her hip, or maybe having an Alanis Morissette song written about her. But you probably know her because she's running for president. We have uh, Marianne Williamson. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great, thank you. Thank you for having me on.
1: <laughs> so this would probably be a good time for you to tell everybody uh, all the stuff that the media really doesn't put out about your background. Because when, when you look you up, basically you're told that you're a self-help guru, and that's all we get.
0: Well, I have had a 35-year career, and you know, today we're talking on World AIDS Day and when my career began in the early 80s I was giving lectures in Los Angeles and very very soon after I began lecturing the AIDS epidemic exploded onto the scene and at at first and for quite a while Western medicine not that it wasn't trying it certainly was but they kept playing cards and coming up empty it was a Definitely, at that time, an incurable situation. If people were uh, told that they had contracted the virus, it was an almost certain death sentence. And also, it took a while before the organized religious institutions had much to say either, working through whatever they had to work through. I, at the time, was a young woman talking over uh, at a place called the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles. And I was talking about spiritual matters, very non-denominational. But I was talking specifically about a God who loves us no matter what, and about how when we love each other, miracles happen. And so gay men, particularly in Los Angeles, everyone affected by the by the virus, but particularly the, the audience of gay, gay men, the population of gay men in LA, began to come to my lectures. And it became... Something that we did, we were together all the time, because it was like being in a war zone, you know, it was like, it was a moment of such despair and desperation. And many of these people were young. Um, This had followed on the heels of, you know, a fabulous time uh, in, you know, party time that all of a sudden crashed into a a terrible 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 thing also i think uh, it's it's almost hard for people to believe this now um we certainly have vestiges of this but at that time you wouldn't even believe how many young men who would come to me they had a double-edged horror on their hands. They had to not only tell their parents that they were dying, but they had to tell their parents they were gay, which, believe it or not, was as horrifying a prospect as having to reveal um, the disease. So there was so much despair and so much pain, but at the same time, there was so much love with which we all held on to each other. So it was a major part of the beginnings of my of my work as a nonprofit activist also, because in addition to giving the lectures and, and what would then become my writing career, I uh, founded an organization called uh, the LA center for living. Then we also had a one in New York called the New York center for living. And what these were about, were about giving non-medical support services to people living with HIV. So let's say you have been diagnosed with this illness. What are you supposed to do all day? People were alone. So we rented a house where people could just come. They could get Reiki. They could get massage. And let me tell you something. At that moment, when there was so much misinformation about AIDS and so much fear about AIDS, the very fact they could get a massage from someone. And these were all free services. And we would feed people and we would sit around and we would watch movies together and have support groups together. It was really quite a phenomenon. And then we started one in New York as well. And then one day I came to the house and I said, where's John or whatever? And they said, well, John's not here today. And I said, well, why isn't John here today? Well, John's not here today because uh, he couldn't get out of bed, so he couldn't come over. And I would say, well, how's he going to eat? And they said, well, we don't know, because we, people were making food at the house every day. So I would say, well, look, we better take a, a meal over to John. And then that turned into a project called Project Angel Food where we delivered meals to homebound people with AIDS and other life-challenging illnesses. And as of today, uh, Project Angel Food has served over 12 million meals.
1: uh, It definitely kind of leads into the whole idea behind your campaign. There definitely seems to be a hill-the-country aspect to it. Um, And I'm just kind of wondering if they play into each other.
0: Well, they more than play into each other. They are each other. Because what I learned during the AIDS crisis was that I learned not only how sad life can be, but I also learned how good people are. I saw it in Los Angeles. I saw it in New York. And I saw it in all of the places where they were doing this kind of work. People really showed up. I mean, one of the great sort of untold stories in a way about that that period of time is not just all the people who rejected gay people. And rejected AIDS patients, but also how many people accepted and and accepted AIDS patients. And, And so much of the stuff that has occurred that grew out of that human rights campaign and gay, you know, marriage equality and all of those things were really seeded by the way people showed up at that time. Particularly, one of the things that was happening in in Los Angeles was that, you know, Los Angeles is so defined by the entertainment industry. And the entertainment industry is so full of obviously very vibrant, obviously very talented gay people. So Hollywood really showed up. So I saw there and then continued with the rest of my nonprofit work. We are good people. Americans are good people. I'm not saying we're better than other people. We're not better than other people, but we are a good and decent people. But you, as you well know, because, you know, I know your work and you and I are certainly aligned on this. You wouldn't know how good and decent we are when you look sometimes at American American public policy. And so the problem we have is the divergence between the goodness and the decency and the dignity of the average American and... Who, who is who is following the dictates of their conscience on a daily basis versus the activity of a government that has been so hijacked and corrupted by, you know, the economic, you know, uh, market forces that are soulless and untethered to any ethical and moral consideration that that public policy then displays no conscience whatsoever, no compassion whatsoever. And the way I have seen it and the way I've seen it play out over the decades is that so many of the people whose hearts are filled with love have just been so turned off to politics for that reason. So then some of the most conscience based people, most integrous people have been chronically disengaged from politics, which only made politics get more toxic, which only made the best people disengage, which only made it more toxic, which brought us to here. And I think that there's been a mass awakening. That's why the popularity of such people as yourselves. But now we have to harness the, the goodness and the decency for political purposes. Because what we did in the nonprofit sector can be done in the public sector. It's the same thing. I think that public policy should act according to the dictates of, of basic decency and 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 conscience in living with other, you know, human and other sentient beings. Um Just like individual behavior should, and I think that people listen and hear us on the level that we speak from, so nobody can say, well, we've tried that, and it didn't work because in fact, we haven't tried it, not in this country. we've never sought to harness real compassion for political purposes
1: yeah when one of the things you said in one of the the debates was you mentioned something along the lines of you know Trump didn't win on ideas, he he won by saying, make America great. And when I was looking at the reactions of people, it almost, it seemed like they thought you were just saying, oh, Republicans are dumb. But to me, that read that he got people excited about an idea, a slogan, even if it didn't really mean anything. Um, Do you think that your work can help achieve kind of a counterbalance to that?
0: I certainly wasn't saying, nor do I believe, that Republicans are dumb. I think that there are high-minded conservative values, and I think that there are high-minded liberal values. Um, Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, who was a Republican president, said that american mind, at its best is both liberal and conservative. It doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, neither side, and no, no group, no socioeconomic group, no ethnic group, no political group has a monopoly on human values. And so I believe that the counterforce to mean spiritedness, wherever it comes from, the left or the right, the counterbalance is a conversation that gets to the heart of the matter where we just we want to be good people and we want to treat people right. And we want a government, you know, if you have a representative government, a government that is supposedly there to quote unquote represent the will of the people. Representing the will of the people should mean representing the consciousness of the people. So if we are good and decent people, whether we're on the left or the right, which I believe that we are, the majority of Americans, good and decent people. And if our government were to, re- to reflect that through, it, through public policy, then absolutely that would be a counterforce to the craziness and the falsity and the mean-spiritedness of this moment.
1: And this brings us to the Department of Peace, right?
0: Yes, we have. We now spend $760 billion on our, on our military budget. Now, my father fought in World War II. I'm a fan of the U.S. military. Obviously, we need a, a strong military. I don't think anybody doubts that. You know, before World War II, we didn't even have a standing army. Obviously, we do now. We, we need that, that. That goes without saying to me. However, I think what too many Americans probably don't realize is how much our military budget reflects hundreds of billions of dollars over and above what the military says that they need. So to me, it's like with your physical body. I see the I see the military like a good surgeon. Does America need a really fine surgeon on hand all the time? Yeah, we do. I I, I mean, we do but a sane person tries to avoid surgery if possible. So you don't just take medicine. You also have to cultivate your health. You have to take care of your diet, take care of exercise, et cetera. If you don't take care of your body, then health, then sickness is almost inevitable. Well, we have to see at the same time, you can't just cultivate preparedness for war and preparedness for war, it must be cultivated, but we must also prepare for peace. You know, Donald Rumsfeld was the, Secretary of Defense under George Bush. He said, we must wage peace. Um, James Mattis, who was the Secretary of Defense under Trump until he left the Defense Department, he said, if you don't fully fund the State Department, I will have to buy more ammunition. So we have to cultivate peace, not just prepare for war. And that's why, so what we have reflected in our budget is we have $760 billion that goes to the military budget but then the State Department is $40 billion. And then within that, we have the USAID, which is a, a long-term development and humanitarian assistance. And then in addition to that 17, also within the $40 billion, is less than $1 billion that we spend on what are called the peace-building agencies. I think a lot of people don't even understand that peace-building agencies exist. There are actually factors having to do with educating children, economic opportunities for women, reduction of violence against women, the basic reduction of human unnecessary human suffering. When those factors are addressed statistically, we have a higher incidence of peace and we have a lower incidence of conflict. America, well, America needs to decide, do we want a violent society? Do we want a nonviolent society? That's really what we need to get to. And that's why a Department of Peace coordinates and addresses, you know, things like restorative justice and conflict resolution and and, um, violence prevention in the schools and trauma-informed education. There are things that we can do on a, on a domestic basis, as well as on an international basis, to increase the probability of peace. We should have a peace academy, just like we have a military academy. And the people in our government who are referred to as the peace builders, in my administration, they would have an equal seat of power at the National Security Council table.
1: Well, that makes sense. I mean, there's... There are a lot of studies from the military side of things showing that the, the civil affairs guys and the guys that go out and build bridges and build schools and stuff Absolutely. like that—they they keep more fights off the battlefield than Absolutely. anybody would have gone.
0: That is so true. And all of this that I said, you're pointing out something really important here, because nothing I said was a critique of the military. These are political decisions. The corruption here is not military corruption. It is political corruption. It has to do with expenditures and activities that are not for military purposes. They are for uh, the purpose of increasing short-term profits for defense contractors. And what what happens, and I've heard this from military people all the time, we, we burden our military with problems that shouldn't even – they shouldn't even be put into the hands of the military. They should have been nipped in the bud years and years before. They shouldn't even have been created. We create – I mean, look at ISIS. It was our invasion of, of, of Iraq that did that. So then the military ends up having to clean up a mess that the politicians created.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so another one of your uh, new ideas, the Department of Children and Youth. What, what is that?
0: We have millions of American children who live with vulnerabilities and challenges that are it's like a huge invisible sea of unnecessary human suffering. We have 13 million hungry children in the United States and we have 100,000 homeless children in the United States. We have children. It, it, it's hard to even fathom. We have millions of children in the United States who go to school, to elementary school, and ask the teacher if they have some food for them. We have millions of American children. Who, we, we have, I don't know, if, on this one, I don't think we have millions, but we definitely have uh, elementary school children on suicide watch in this country. And we do have millions of children who go to classrooms where there are not even the adequate school supplies Uh, with which to teach a child to read. And if a child cannot learn to read by the age of eight, then the chances of high school graduation are drastically reduced and the chances of incarceration are drastically increased. So the question can't just be how to create jobs. It also has to be how to create an education and how to fully actualize the intellectual and, and and cultural capacity of every child. I want a massive realignment of investment in the United States in the direction of our children. And so, and 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 because so much happens before the age of 10. So I want every school in the United States to be a palace of learning and culture and the arts. Because if you child, if you if set a child up to succeed before the age of 10, so much is handled. So much is handled. So we need trauma informed education. We need community wraparound services. We need mental health counselors. Right now, we have one mental health counselor for every 1,500 children in the United States and the uh, public schools. We're not even having, I don't know if you have children, but I don't know if we're not even having a national conversation about what is PTSD. That Because we the psychologists now say that millions of American children in our schools are suffering a form of PTSD that is no less severe than the PTSD of our returning veterans from Afghanistan and Iraq. Now think about this. Think about your workplace and, and everybody should think about, you know, let's say the workplace, wherever you work, okay? So imagine if where you go every day, there was now an established pattern around the country of people coming in and doing a mass shooting. Imagine if you work at a department store but let's say that there was a pattern now of people coming up and shooting up people at a department store. This would give you a level of chronic PTSD. These, and these kids are now in our schools on these lockdowns. So I think that we need to recognize the emotional and psychological problems of so many children. And we can help these children. And so um, there are many things that we can do to address the violence prevention and issues such as that in our schools, among our children, uh, we could have mindfulness in the schools. There are, the, the, these are vulnerabilities and challenges that go beyond the capacity of the Department of Education and Health and Human Services to deal with. That's true of both uh, both the Department of Peace and Department of Children and Youth. A lot of it is coordinating. It's not creating new things, it's just like we did with the Home Department of Homeland security we we recognized after nine eleven that we had there was all this tragic i don't you know I realize now when I'm talking there are people who do not remember because they're they're too young to actually remember that day necessarily but one of the really tragic things that happened at nine eleven was I think it was Muhammad Atta's computer. And because the FBI wasn't in communication with the CIA, just, it was just a simple lack of communication that could have made all the difference. So Homeland Security was created to just coordinate And that's what we need to do in terms of creating a more peaceful society. And that's what we need to do in terms of helping these children coordinate some of these efforts that are already happening, but they're not connected to each other. And some of the problem solving is not we we fund the problem creators. We do not fund the problem solvers. We fund the problem creators because they represent corporate interests, all that stuff that you talk about so eloquently all the time.
1: Uh, Yeah. So one of the uh, uh, one of the more controversial series of videos that I did was actually on reparations and I based it on a number and it was the highest number I could find thrown out by any politician. And it's one fifth of the number that you're proposing. Um, So I'm curious how you see reparations working and. Basically, what's the end goal for reparations. It doesn't look like it's just a payout.
0: No, it's not a payout. Um, I don't think the average American is a racist. That's not my experience or my belief, but I do think that the average American is woefully undereducated about the history of race. So I think my experience in talking in the whitest states in America is That when people hear the history, you know, a lot of it we learned, but we learned it in the seventh grade. We don't really remember or we weren't taught that much of it. And like we were talking at the beginning, you and I, we're decent people. So let's look at this. The first slave ship was brought over in uh, 1619 and slavery did not end in this country till 1865. That's just shy of 250 years. So at that time, General Tecumseh Sherman promised 40 acres and a mule. To every former slave family of four, and historians believe that there were at that time between four and five million people who were emancipated. So the 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 promise of the forty acres and a mule was in, was rescinded, and what what followed, except for twelve years of reconstruction, the the North sent down the the U.S. government sent down federal troops to the South to ensure that slavery would not be reinstituted, but they left after 12 years. So except for those 12 years, you had, following 250 years of slavery, another 100 years of institutionalized violence towards black people, because the Southern legislatures passed what were called the Black Code Laws to ensure that there would be subpar economic and social and political opportunities for black people. So that was not addressed. You have slavery over in 1865, and it wasn't until 1965. 100 years. It's staggering. 100 years before the Civil Rights Movement, the, um, the, Civil, Ra- the Civil Rights Act in 1964 uh, uh, dismantled segregation. And in 1965, the Voting Rights Act gave... Uh, equal access to the ballot. But a lot of that's been chipped away at because of the chipping away of the Voting Rights Act in 2013. The point is that the economic gap, right, that existed when slavery ended, that has never been closed. Now, Germany has paid $89 billion in reparations to Jewish organizations since World War II, and one of the things that's interesting about that to me is that even though obviously it doesn't mean the Holocaust didn't happen, it has gone far towards establishing reconciliation between Germany and the Jews of Europe. Many people now acknowledge this issue of the, of the, black, of the gap. Now, there was a study recently, you know, if, if you have a black person in America who has equal educational and professional achievement to a white person they still statistically make less money and what has been established is that if black families made as much wealth as white families our economy would be 1.5 trillion dollars larger so it would help everybody now if you actually take the 4 to 5 million slave uh, uh, slaves uh, and then family of 4 and multiply that, 40 acres and a mule, we'd be talking about trillions of dollars. Well, that's not going to happen. But I believe anything less than $100 billion is an insult. It's like when you're selling a house and somebody comes in so low, you don't even call them back. I, think, I believe $500 billion is is politically feasible because I think we're a good people. And I think that we need politicians who say to people, instead of just what this does for you or what this does for you. We need a politics. And that's what I believe my campaign is that says to people, let's do the right thing and the whole country will be better off. So my idea, my plan is for a council, a reparations council. And this would be, let's say anywhere between 35 and 70 people who are black leaders from culture, business, academia, et cetera. And, It is their job to disperse the $500 billion over a period of 20 years, and the stipulation on the part of the U.S. government is that the money is only to be used for purposes of economic and educational renewal. So if the reparations council uses the money towards historically uh, black colleges, if they use it for venture capital, uh, de-gentrification efforts, that's their business. If I owe you money, I don't get to tell you how to spend it, as long as it's within that stipulation of economic and educational renewal. And um, the difference between race-based policies and, um, and reparations is that race-based policies address the economic issue. But they don't address the moral issue. They don't, they don't provide for the kind of psychological and emotional healing that this country needs in regards to race. We just take this toxic baton of racial turbulence and we just pass it generation to generation. What reparations do is they carry an inherent mea culpa, an inherent acknowledgement of the historical wrong that was done, the, the willingness of, 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 on the part of a generation to recognize it as a debt, and a willingness to pay it. I just, to me, it's such a win-win. It's such a win-win on every level, including economic, by the way. If you compare, you know, we, we, you look at the 2017 tax cut, right? $2 trillion, where 83 cents of every dollar went to the very richest corporations and individuals. And we don't even have, nobody has given any evidence that that will ever even pay for itself, much less stimulate the economy. Whereas something like this absolutely does. So that's the plan.
1: Now, how do you think uh, you're going to be able to get, I mean, when when reparations comes up? Now, I know you've said in the past that you don't believe that the average American is is racist. And I don't know, maybe it's because I'm down here in the South. (laughs) I have a a little bit of a different view (laughs) most times.
0: What did you say to that?
1: I, was, I said you know maybe it's that i'm down here in the south i i tend to have a a different view of that most times uh I, we wanted to race a lot down here um i'm curious that number and you're you're right uh you're about a billion dollars that's what i use to do all the math on and when you break it down it is it's an insult um Five hundred billion—that definitely seems more in the ballpark. But even at a hundred billion, I was watching people just freak out over the money, and I'm just—I'm wondering how you're going to convince the average white guy in the South that this is something we need to do.
0: Well, one of the things I know about your work—I don't when I watch you. I don't feel like you figured out what you should say. That's not that's not what I feel from you. It's not about my figuring out what people want to hear. That that's the corruption of our politics. Politicians figuring out what you want to hear, figuring out what they can get away with, that's not leadership. If we're not going to have a big enough number, then we should then we shouldn't do it. Because you have to have a younger generation if we pay out 100 billion dollars which is a lot of money but then you have a younger generation of black people that still says oh yeah we didn't really do much what what where did that get us if it's not a big enough number then it it doesn't carry the force either economically or in any or, or morally or 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 uh, spiritually, or emotionally, or psychologically. It has to be big enough that it's, that it's the level of, of statement and the level of repair. Now, you talk about the South. I come from Houston, Texas. Not only do I come from Houston, I was born and raised there. I mean, I know, I know about racial attitudes. You know, I mean, hello, Texas. But I have also seen how the world has changed. I, I remember as a little girl, when I used to go to, uh, there was a building that's still there in Houston called the Medical Towers. And we go to the doctor. And I remember seeing a sign between the elevators, colored restrooms downstairs. And I remember asking my mother why that was. And my mother explaining things to me. And I remember when, after the, the Civil Rights Act, though that was gone, that was part of what was, was outlawed, that kind of thing, because that's segregation. I remember hearing a man um, call an adult black man, I heard a white, a white man calling a, a, an adult black man who was working in a restaurant, say, come here, boy, and asking my father what that was about, and my father explaining to me. But my parents explained this to me in terms of how wrong it was. And the, and the good thing is this country has made strides. You know, I, there are a lot more lovers than haters in this country, it's just that the haters are, are active politically and they have megaphones and they're on social media. So you're right. There are people out there who are racist and there are people out there who don't relate to what I'm talking about. But there are also millions and millions of people out there who are not racist and who do know what I'm talking about. And the way I'm, my whole campaign is about saying, what, what I think leaders should do is to say what the leader thinks needs to be said. And then, not, because once you start just saying what you think you need to say in order to get elected, then that's got us to where we are. So I'm saying what I believe needs to be said, and people, hey, they're going to vote for it or not. And also, let's remember, the president doesn't have a magic wand. So when I say reparations... You know, plan 500 billion, that doesn't mean I'm going to have a magic wand to make it happen the next day. It's what I'm proposing, is what I believe is a good idea. And it begins a national conversation and we take it somewhere.
1: All right. Okay. So, something I ask everybody that comes on the show is uh, what is one thing the average person can do to make the world better, to provide the solution? Just one individual action that a person on their own can do.
0: Purify your own heart. There's so much meanness today. There's so much meanness on the left and on the right. There's so much, something really terrible has happened. You know, it's like when we don't agree with someone these days, it's like not only do we not agree, but they should shut up. (laughs) That's like an emotional fascism that's in the air. And I think we all need to be more forgiving. And we all need to be more respectful of people who don't share our opinion. You know, there's a smug, a smug, self-righteous intolerance on the left is no less dangerous to the emotional fabric of this country than a smug, self-righteous, intolerant person on the right. You know, I'm sure that there are people who have heard the conversation you have, I've had today who might not agree with my conclusions but still, a conversation can add to your understanding, it can add to your insight, it can add to your thinking, whether or not you agree. I mean, there are many things that high-minded, a high-minded conservative might talk about, and in the end, I don't, I don't agree with the ultimate conclusion. But I'm like, yeah, I, I'm, my thinking is broader because I heard it talked about that way. Um, Nobody, nobody has a monopoly on values and nobody owns this country. We all do. And meanwhile, there's this left versus right thing that we're all caught up, caught up in and the real enemy of democracy, which is this corporatism and this corporate aristocracy, which has market forces unfettered to any ethical or moral consideration for people or planet is just corrupting our government undermining our values and eating this country alive while we're over here having these ultimately unimportant fights, not recognizing where the real assault on our democracy is coming from. Because it's not from high-minded conservatism or high-minded liberalism. It's coming from something that's really dark. (laughs) So that's how I see those things. You know, we have a politics of people-pleasing. We have politicians, you know, they do focus groups and this is what we should say to get elected. What is going on here? That's just the degradation once again, you know. That's why I like shows like yours. You're just a truth teller. You're just letting it fall where it falls. Somebody agrees with you or they don't agree with you. Um, That's what I think politics should be.
1: Okay, so we're closing in on the end of the show here. Parting shot. And this is the part where you can... Get any point out, like I know you're in Iowa now, um, doing a big push there. Uh, talk about anything you want to plug, anything you need to, anything along those
0: lines. Well, in Iowa, you know, we have a corporate aristocracy, and it's made up of health insurance companies and big pharmaceutical companies, and gun manufacturers, and um, food companies, and chemical companies, and agribusiness, and um, and defense contractors, and <laughs> oil and gas and the way our country works, and all of them have a legitimate role to play in our in our country. I mean, it's not like they don't have legitimate roles to play in our country. But what we have done since the 1980s is given their short-term profits undue influence. And our government does more to advocate for their short-term profits for their stockholders than it does to advocate for our people and our health and our safety and our planet. Now, in Iowa one of the places where this is the most dangerous and destructive has to do with the role of agribusiness and the way it has devastated the farming sector. And we have in Iowa, you have farmers who are committing suicide. You have an explosion of, of um, bankruptcies among farmers. You have terrible de- uh, devastation of the soil, lack of crop diversification, all of this started back in the 80s because before then, in the 70s, but before then, if a farmer didn't have a good, you know, yield one year, it went to the bank. The bank was liable to be a, a local bank that would most probably say, well, we understand you had a bad year. Don't worry about it. We'll extend the loan. You'll, you'll, you'll pay us next year. But what happened starting in the 80s was that the banking Became so much a handmaiden to corporate agribusiness. So you have all these people never even visited this land. They know nothing about farming. They know nothing about land. And all it's about is about creating short-term profit. And this has devastated the farming sector. But the thing is, and once again, you talk about this all the time. It's one underlying problem, and that is the corporate takeover of the U.S. government. It's an, it's, it looks like it's different problems. You know, it looks like a, it's the opioid crisis over there because of predatory practices on the part of big pharma. It's the Boeing disaster over there because of the FAA looking away while Boeing, you know, cut corners over there. It's devastation among farmers over here because of agribusiness and what it's done to farmers. But it's really it looks like different problems. It's really only one problem. And that is what has happened when your government has so sold out. That whether it's the FAA not looking at Boeing or the FDA not watching out what was going on with big pharma and the opioid crisis, or whether it's the USDA uh, and the FDA being in the, in the pockets of agribusiness rather than the government doing what it used to do, which is really supporting the farmer. This is what we need to recognize, that we need a nonviolent political revolution in this country because the corporate aristocracy represents it's, it's an economic tyranny. And it is hurting people, and it is undermining our democracy. Our government is supposed to represent the will of the people, not just represent the short-term profit motivation of huge corporate conglomerates, which have no sense of, of ethical or moral responsibility to people. And our entire political establishment is in on it. Our entire political establishment is so corrupted because of the money that it's time for the people to step in. And uh, that's what you do, and that's what I do. and uh, There there are a lot of us. There are a lot of us. There are a lot of us in there. And uh, I think uh, ultimately it's going to lead to a good thing.
1: I think so, too. All right. So that's going to wrap up the show, uh, the interview portion of the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, this will be the end of it. Um, And uh, I really want to thank you for coming on.
0: Oh, I want to thank you. You're busy.
1: You got to go do. Thank you.
0: Thank you. I learned from you and I, I think you're, you're great and you're you're doing something really important, as you know. Thank you so much.
1: <laughs> Thank you. All right. But yeah. You I have a good you. night. Bye. Bye. And we're back. All right, now to address the elephant in the room. I'm sure there are a whole bunch of people right now going, why didn't you ask her about gun control? Okay, so here we go. The reason I didn't ask her about gun control, the elephant in the room, is because it doesn't matter. In order to uh, advance gun control in the United States, you need a lot of political capital. The kind of political capital you're not really going to get until your second term. Why do people want gun control right now? What's the big push? The big push is because of school shootings. That's the big push. We talk a lot about motive versus means. If you look at the rest of her platform and you listen to that interview, you listen to her talk about what she's planning. What are the solutions that we've come up with on the channel? Mental health in the schools teaching kids coping skills, income inequality, racial injustice. Those are the motives. Workplace shootings happen because of income inequality. People are scared. They don't feel safe. Students lack coping skills. They don't have access for somebody to talk to. They don't have anybody interested in them. Racial injustice provides a a tool to radicalize them. If all of that's gone... And the motives removed, is there really going to be a push for gun control? Because I imagine the school shootings would stop. So, yeah, I am certain that there are a whole bunch of people that diverge from her on that issue. But when it comes to the reality of it, we'll probably never see her policies. We'll probably never see any of that come into play. Because by the time this other stuff comes into play and she has the political capital to push that issue, it's going to be a moot point. Anybody in the gun crowd knows assault weapons, assault rifles, rifles of all kind amount, they're responsible for less than 3% of murders. It's nothing. When the school shootings are gone, those high-profile incidents are gone, the push is gone with it. Anyway, that's the end of the show for tonight. Uh, y'all have a good night. It's just a thought.